Well, welcome to Keyboard College, uh, to this Advanced Study Centre termly lecture. Um, the Advanced Study Centre here at Keyboard uh, is an uh, interdisciplinary venture, and it's um, uh, a, um, about three, three and a half to four years old now since we began. And we have lots of research clusters that are interdisciplinary uh, in their nature. And so it's a great privilege to welcome our speaker tonight, who's, um, I, I think, in the field of ancient DNA, um, works harder than anybody else to become interdisciplinary and to work with different scientists and different groups of people. Um, tonight's talk is going to be broadcast, it is being broadcast through livestream.com through the Oxford University podcasts. So hopefully people out there on the internet can hear me. Okay, yes, I think they can. And, um, yep. and so um, we're going to welcome a lot of other people from um, around the world, in, in, not just in, uh, in Oxford, and we're going to welcome questions from people at the end of, uh, at the end of uh, Tom Gilbert's uh, lecture. So it's a great pleasure to, to introduce our speaker tonight, Tom Gilbert, from, uh, from Copenhagen, as you can see, uh, Centre for Geogenetics. Uh, Tom is originally from Oxford. He was an undergraduate here. He read biological sciences at Oriel, and then he did a DPhil. Um, with Alan Cooper's group uh, of DNA um, in, in, the, in the ancient DNA lab uh, based at New College. And then in 2003, he headed to Arizona to work on viruses and the DNA sequences of viruses. And a really interesting project. He looked at HIV and HIV in preserved materials, I think in formaldehyde. That was the big problem, the technical problem, to try and get DNA out, out of um, human remains uh, from Zaire, from the former Zaire. And then later he went to Copenhagen, where he's now based. Um, Tom's underlying research theme is the investigation of ecological and evolutionary biological, anthropological, archaeological data using ancient uh, genetics and ancient DNA techniques. And his breadth of research is quite phenomenal, as indeed most uh, of his colleagues in Copenhagen um, are. For example, he's working on um, genetics of taxa as varied as killer whales, narwhals, reindeer, woolly rhino, mammoth, rhinoceroses, cyber antelope, musk oxen. Um, one of my favourite uh, applications of his is uh, looking at giant and colossal squid. In fact, if you want to have a laugh, go on to Tom's um, Google Citations website and you'll see him dressed up in a fantastic fancy dress outfit of a giant squid. It really is worth a visit in itself. Um, as well as that, and probably from our um, interest and in area, um, archaeological interest, he's also done a huge amount of work in the Americas and looking at early humans coming into, uh, into the Americas and uh, the American continent, looking at, for example, hair and coprolite DNA from a series of really important sites in the northwest of the United States. And uh, looking also at um, domestication of maize, grapes, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, as a result of all of this work and as a result of being an excellent collaborator with many different research groups, he has a phenomenal publication output. Um, Tommy G has, I mean, his H index is more than 50. For someone of that young age, it's quite phenomenal. Um, so uh, it's a really great privilege to be, to have him here tonight to give this talk. Um, tonight he's not going to be talking about any of the stuff I've just mentioned. He's actually going to be talking about avian evolution and birds. And this stems from research that uh, he headed up with um, a couple of other people, which was um, published at the end of last year in a fantastic special edition in the journal Science, which published eight papers in a special edition. I mean, that's um, phenomenal in itself. And a further 20 that were published 
um, shortly after, I think the day after, in different journals around the world. So he's going to be talking to us today about the avian genome explosion. It's a great privilege and pleasure to welcome Tom Gilbert to Keeble to give this Tim's lecture. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, and uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, that was very nice to say all those things, and it puts you ancient DNA people in your place, because <laughs> now I'm officially on, Sky, on the internet better than you guys. Um, so yeah, so Tom asked me if I could, I could give a talk, and I was actually very uncertain about who the audience would be, so um, I wasn't sure if I should make this very technical or less technical. I'm going to try and go in the middle, and, and Tom asked if I could talk a bit about avian genomics, and so what I wanted to share was really what I have learned, because uh, basically I know very little about birds, until recently, I knew nothing about genomes. And so this has been a very big learning experience for me, and that's kind of what I want to cover today. So my title, of course, was the, the avian genome explosion, but there was a second part, which was about publishing pigeons. I'm going to try and explain why. So some very brief history for those of you who are not geneticists. If you go back about 20 years ago, um, of course, sequencing was like this. It was a very laborious, slow process that only today is found in CSI Miami. They routinely still hold these gels up. Otherwise, people would look at these smears and get very small amounts of data and not be able to say very much about much because of this small amount of data. And then, of course, in the 90s, Sanger sequencing comes in, um, at least in, the, in, in the, the color chemistry form. And we're getting up to sort of 800 base pair reads on a good day for about 100 samples at once. And so there's still not very, very much data when you want to study genomes, genomes being on the scale of, at least with eukaryotic organisms, anywhere up to one, three, five, even 100 gigabase of sequence. And then, of course, there's a revolution in, in about the mid-2000s. Uh, these crazy machines come in. This is more of a history picture these days. These are early versions of the Illumina platform and the solid platform that maybe somebody will remember. But uh, despite the fact that they had their, their sort of stops and starts at the beginning, they very, very rapidly revolutionized things and introduced genomics. Essentially, it became possible in the, the mid-2000s to sequence genome-scale data sets and analyze them, and, and really, this is what I want to focus on now, like what, what can be done now and uh, what I've been doing with it. Uh, just one other quick point. If you look at the genomics journal cycle, and by genomics here, I'm focusing on basically big metazoans, so sexy things like humans and birds and stuff. Until about 2012, it was pretty easy to get a paper in Nature or Science. You had to sequence something and release it, and you go, here's my oyster genome. You didn't have to do much with it. It was just enough to have the genome. This has been changing fast. By 2013, you're getting into sort of PNS, still very, very good. 2014, the genomes are appearing in plus one. This is a sign of how the times are getting worse and worse. And even in journals like De Novo, which you've probably never heard of, and it's not made up, it's a journal created to publish the Sasquatch Genome Project. <laughs> you may not believe me, look it up, and you'll also notice the interesting thing that the Sasquatch appears to be Clint Eastwood, remarkable <laughs> similarity. Um, but there is a serious point to this. Why is there this, this drop in impact factor? And really it's because genomics has moved from an area where instead of having huge, huge teams of people working on a sample, pretty much anybody with a small amount of cash can start to do their own genome. So a bit of history again. As Tom said, I did my bachelor project, well, my, my whole degree here. I used to work on this. This is Rivulus hartii. This was a fish that I ran a series of torturous experiments on where I would take it out of water. This is real put it on the ground and watch it flip around helplessly till it got back in water. This was a classic mid-90s science project. Today I could do the genome of this and work out why it was dying as opposed to just watching it dying. And of course, if you're the Sasquatch people, you can look at other things like why do reindeers fly. You can very quickly get it, get to your colleagues, they'll sequence the DNA and you can publish it in your high-impact journals like De Noble Plus. 
So how did I actually get into this? Well, this actually starts, and this is a completely true story. I'm sitting in Madrid in probably 2006. Uh, we were having an ancient DNA meeting, actually, at the time. And like many, many scientists who just about got a 10-year position, I was thinking, how the hell am I going to fund myself? What's my big project going to be? And of course, being fairly junior, the definition of a project for me was it was going to be easy to get samples. This is a big problem, at least with animal people. It was going to be something no one else was working on, especially not Alan Cooper, because as people who used to work for him know, Alan's pretty much invented every project and works on it. And so I was looking for this unique combination of them. And as I'm sitting there, I kid you not, a pigeon craps on my head. And so I'm like, ah, pigeons. And I get thinking, like, you know, why? And I know the navigation guys love pigeons. Like Tim Guilford used to lecture us on pigeons, but why was no one doing genetics on pigeons? Uh, if you dig into reliable sources like Wikipedia, you'll find they're the first domestic bird. Um, they've got all sorts of cultural significance, including, I'll point out, they crapped on Jesus and they crapped on this person. So it's a good line of study going on there. And of course, there's over 350 breeds of these. And, and of course, they were fundamental to Darwin's books. Um, Darwin was a big, big fan of pigeons. He wrote several of his books. He, he featured the pigeons. In fact, and this is a, a true point, apparently um, when the publisher released The Origin of Species, one of the early readers, a guy called Elwin, actually wrote back to the publisher and said, like, you should drop all this evolution nonsense, just focus on the pigeons, right? They were really a big thing in the 19th century. They've had huge amounts of work put on them, and as you can see from this, they've got very, very big morphological variations. So this makes quite an interesting study system. They're easy to get hold of, they're all around the world, morphologically very variable, and in general, nobody cares about them, so it's the perfect combination. As I said, they're easy to get. This is a pretty standard way of getting them. Pigeons are a pest in most places. You don't have to spend a lot of time applying for permissions. You basically ring up whoever's nearby and say, can we get your pigeons? Copenhagen Zoo, for example, were more than happy for us to go in there and shoot them. There is, of course, a drawback here. Shooting pigeons is harder than it looks, especially when you're an untrained amateur like, like us. Pigeons sit up there. This is just a quick tip for those who care about this. This is our trapping method. You buy croissants from 7-Eleven, scatter them on the ground. Much, much easier to get them. I'm saying this now because I really, really could do with some UK pigeons, and I need a collaborator. It's very, very easy. So anyway, so, so I decide I'm going to do pigeons. I'm going to go big scale. We're going to do pigeon genomics. And so I actually talked to Rasmus Nielsen. Rasmus Nielsen's a very, very big name in population genetics, in uh, phylogenetics. And I thought you know, I could do with a, a guiding light to what to do. And I said to Rasmus, you know, there's 350 pigeon breeds out there. Which one do I pick? And Rasmus basically said, well, try and find a pigeon with a good... Uh, good pedigree, good history, so you know what you're doing. So I get reading, and it turns out this bird here is called the Danish tumbler. This is a, um, a bird. It's had you know, 500 years of documented uh, domestication on it, so we know a lot about this bird. So I go to a breeder. I get a sample, which is a story for another time, how you do this. And I send it off to China, my colleagues at BGI, who'd agreed to be part of this. Now, again, if you go back to the late 2000s, when genomes were a new thing, at this time, BGI were very keen to be involved in many, many projects, and the deal was you would generally talk to somebody influential who would talk to BGI, who would then take your sample and then send you back a table like this. And of course, me, I mean, I've never had a genome before. I've had a few hundred base pairs of mitochondrial DNA. I'm left looking at this table going like, what the hell is this table about? And, and this is a pretty standard output of a genome sequencing project. What it tells you is it's a species, whatever name I gave it. 63x, I honestly thought at first this was something to do with the number of chromosomes. It's not for those who care about these things. This is the coverage of the genome. It's a very, very, very important point. That's why I'm highlighting it. Genomes come in many, many, many qualities. Some genomes are at very, very low x. Some are at very, very high x. 
And if somebody says they've got a genome, ask them what coverage is your genome, because with that you can start to get an idea of how good the genome is. And then there are a few other stats, including the genome size and the average side of the contigs and the scaffolds. And there are things like the number of genes and the mean length. Unfortunately, by the time I got this, sort of 2011, we couldn't just publish random crap in nature anymore just because it was a genome, so we had to think of something to do with it. And this is actually where my real introduction began because I was left wondering, how can I publish this genome? My original plan had been to sequence genomes of pigeons all around the world, but that takes time. So I was in this situation where essentially BGI were like, here's the genome, go and publish it. And I was like, how the hell do I publish this genome? It was a little bit awkward. So I started looking at what can you do now at the time, there were three other genomes out there. This is the zebrafinch, very, very common model organism. This is a turkey before they became really the big fat ones you see today, so that's the wild turkey. These were out there, and of course, you can make these fancy Venn diagrams and look at the number of genes that are shared and unique to them. Not very, very exciting, and I thought, well, that's probably not going to get me the big paper I, I need to, to justify this. So I'm thinking of other things, and then I run into this guy. This is uh, Mike Shapiro at Utah. It turns out Mike is the only other person in the world who cares about pigeon genetics. And this guy's doing some really, really, really great work um, on pigeon breeds, trying to basically look at morphology and genetics underlying it. So again, here's a, here's a phylogeny of the pigeons. The main thing to focus on, is, again, is these colored pictures of how they look very different. This is your wild, uh, in fact, this is the outgroup, the, the hill pigeon, but that's basically what a wild pigeon would look like. And these are some of the crazy variants. You know, you get these things with very expanded chest, with crazy feet, long necks, apparently no head on that pigeon. Many, many, many different kinds of things. And so what's unique about this morphological variation is that it's probably the greatest morphological variation in any animal species out there. I mean, people think that dogs are divergent when you compare a chihuahua to an Alsatian, but for total terms and modifications, pigeons are the things. And Mike is trying to, with his lab, dig into the genetics of this. And so we take my genome, which is a good genome, and he then sequences at low coverage, sort of like 3, 4x, genomes of about 48 different breeds. In fact, all the breeds in, in that thing there. And he does some basic scans for selection. This is the basic tool of, of what anyone in a genomic study does. The details don't matter, but you basically take the genome, you scan along it, and you look for mutations that seem to be under very, very strong selection. And using several methods, we found a particular point in the genome. And this thing uh, basically correlated to a mutation, an amino acid changing mutation that some pigeons had, some didn't have, and the other birds don't have it. And we dug into this, and in fact, we actually managed to do something. This is 2013. We basically managed to prove what this mutation did, and that was enough to get the paper in science. The point of this is to say that genomes, really, we don't know what we're doing. A single understanding, a single mutation in 2013 would still get you the big paper. What it does is it modifies the head crest. So this is what a head crest is. It's these basically feathers sticking up, everything from a small amount to the complete disco afro effect here. Um, and so not only did we find that the breeds with these reversions had this, but we could actually do some sort of nice functional experiments and show that basically if you have the mutation, the feathers on your head grow up instead of down. Instead of just looking at the pigeons, you can play around with you know, genetic modification and, and do it. Uh, and the other interesting thing, if you look at the tree, the ones in red, these are all the ones carrying this mutation, right? So it's not a discrete clade in the tree. It's all over the tree. Now this in turn starts to raise questions of, is this just crossbreeding, right? These are domestic animals. Pigeon lovers like that head crest, they'll start breeding things and mixing it in. But could it also be convergent evolution? And this is one of the topics that I think is going to be getting more and more interesting now we can get more and more genomes, sort of uh, sorting out the difference between crossbreeding and convergent evolution. Um, one quick example of convergence, this is another study that came out led by a guy called Andy Foote. 
He did a very simple study. You'll probably recognize these. Um, there are three lineages of land mammals that have hit the marine environment. Dolphins and whales form one. Closest outgroup will be the cow and the sheep. Uh, pinnipeds, walruses, uh, seals, and so on, and the dogs. Manatees and elephants. And by sequencing these genomes and looking for the, the selection that's going on, Andy was trying to study, are there these very limited evolutionary pathways that lead you to the marine environment? Or can you evolve independently to the marine environment in many, many different ways? So Andy's study was, was kind of nice. He looked at it and he found, yes, there's actually quite a lot of identical amino acid mutations found only in these marine lineages, which got us kind of excited because it kind of pointed to, yeah, there does seem to be this kind of very, very narrow pathways. And in fact, a similar paper came out by Joe Parker, who used to be in zoology with Ollie uh, Pibus, where he showed echolocating has actually got convergence between bats and dolphins. But the interesting thing, though, that when we did the other control, and um, ignore that, when we did the other control, and we looked at, is there any convergence between these lineages, the cow, sheep, the dog, and the elephant? We found way more convergent evolution in these. So our initial signal that said, yeah, there is convergent evolution from marine environment, yes, that's true, but there seems to be convergence for a lot more things. So you can start getting into these kind of questions of how limited and how narrow are these paths of evolution. So that was the pigeons. But, but again, this was all actually came in by chance. And I started doing this in about 2013. But back in 2010, I still had the BGI mafia on my tail saying publish the, the, the pigeon genome. And so at this point, we actually turned to our, our major focus. Um, for those who don't know your birds, this is a very basic representation of avian family tree. You've got the paleognase at the base. These are basically uh, the flightless things, kiwis, ostriches, emus, plus the tinamous, which still fly. The gallo and seriforms, you've got your chickens and your ducks and your other tasty birds. And then the neoavies. Neoavies are some nine plus thousand species of birds, the major avian radiation. And it's been long, long known that deciphering the phylogenetic tree or the family tree of the neoavies is a complete and utter nightmare. This is a pretty standard phylogeny if you actually talked to people a few years ago and they told you the truth. It's a flat polytony. We really don't know what's going on. There's a very good hypothesis for this. The idea is dinosaurs are running around the world. Meteor hits the world 65 million years ago. Dinosaurs die out and then a few theropod lineages survive and they're the birds. They go bang, they radiate rapidly. Rapid radiations are a nightmare to reconstruct what's going on. So back in 2011, I basically thought, well, maybe we can try and solve this using genomes. And so I spoke to Goji, my very good colleague at BGI, and I said, well, you know, we've got a pigeon, what do you have? And we kind of shared our cards. And he had about four or five other genomes, and there were two or three published, so we had about nine genomes. And then I basically played a game with Goji about how many other genomes can we put in in time. And they agreed to sequence, in the end, about 45 genomes, which is a very, very, very large data set. They agreed to sequence one avian genome per order just to try and see, can we use these genomes to really dig into these questions that may otherwise be unsolvable, or is it never going to be possible to resolve the avian family tree? So Goji and Eric Jarvis, he was the other guy that, that led this with us. Um, we started the project in sort of... Uh, Late 2010, uh, BGI are a sequencing monster. They generate huge amounts of data, and we were fairly sure we would just give our samples, they would sequence them, and then we'd very, very quickly have our data, and we'd publish our paper and be done with it. So we said, you know, over by Christmas. And, uh, of course, we weren't over by Christmas, at least not that year, just like the First World War. These are the birds we did. We picked one per order. Picking one bird per order is not easy because different bird experts disagree on what an order of birds is, so we had to pick some kind of definition. We went with the Howard and Moore for those that care. We were basically constrained by what samples could we get our hands on that were good quality and nobody would complain. And so we sort of, it's a pretty eclectic mix of birds. Um, but we pretty much aimed to get what we wanted. Um, a lot of challenges. 
Getting the DNA was by no means easy. Sequencing it, of course, is difficult. Uh, all sorts of problems with CITES protection and these kind of things on many species. Assembling the genomes was actually quite easy, but uh, the problem it turns out when you assemble genomes, and this was a big learning experience for me, when your genome's a billion bases long, it's very hard to check the quality of what you've done. So you end up with these genomes and you hit all sorts of buttons and magic comes out. And then when if you actually look in detail, you've just got a load of crap. So very, very irritating problem. You have to work out basically ways of making electronic eyes to check the quality of your genomes. We had to annotate the genomes. Annotation, for those that don't know, is simply taking the genome and saying, and this bit is this gene, and this bit is this gene. Very, very hard, and as I said, not over by Christmas. Um, I want to quickly discuss one issue that was incredibly eye-opening for me, and I think is fundamental for anybody who wants to do genomics. When we started building the phylogenies of the birds, in every single phylogeny we made, we had two clades of birds. We were doing them gene by gene, and we would always have two clades, and they made no sense. You would have, for example, chicken in one clade, duck in the other clade. You would have like a one passerine in one clade, one passerine in the other one. And we were wondering what the hell is going on with this problem. Now, it turns out that basically, when you dig back into what was happening, there were two people in the team annotating our genomes. They had our genomes. They took half each. The way they were annotating was they were comparing them to the published reference genomes. One published one is the chicken. One is the zebra finch. And every single situation we got, we have chicken genome species, zebra finch genome species here. Because it turns out, Different annotations happen in very, very, very different ways. They're almost chaotic pathways. Something's tweaked at the beginning of an automated process, and everything goes out of control. This is majorly worrying, because it means you cannot rely on the fact that gene A in one species is the same as gene A in another species. So basically, what I'm saying by this is, if you want to do comparative genomics, I strongly recommend you go back to the raw data, reassemble from scratch, reannotate from scratch, and then do the project. Sounds easy, but these can take like a month per species on a big computer. So it really actually limits what can be done with available genomes. But we, we get it fixed uh, three and a half years later, and we start building phylogenies. And then the next problem kicks in. We kind of build one phylogeny and another one and another one. And when you've got a genome, genomes are a billion or so bases long. If you're properly trained in Oxford in evolution by people like Eddie Holmes, uh, who lecture you on this, they basically tell you you should partition the data into exons and first codon positions and third codon positions and introns and blah, 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 blah. When you start splitting up the data, you get very awkward results. Now, this is a complicated picture, but all you have to understand, along the bottom here, these are different ways of breaking up genomic data, and these are different possible clusterings of birds. And basically, for any clustering, I'll zoom in on one, for example, here. This is a clustering saying, what, when do we see parrots and... Uh, falcons and songbirds together under which conditions. Red means you never ever see them as monophyletic. Green means they're always monophyletic. Blue means sometimes yellow is like 50-50. The point is, any particular topology you want, you can get supported with 100% support or rejected with 100% support, just depending on how you partition the data. Big, big, big problem, because it means, well, you can, well it's actually quite good if you want to get the answer, you want to find the answer, but otherwise, how do you miss up your data? So this makes things very, very complicated and was very, very illuminating. If you look at papers, for example, um, recent papers on mammal genome-based phylogenies, they simply take the data, run a pretty standard model on it because of computational limitations, get an answer. But I think until you really break these data sets down into different component parts, you have a strong, strong problem here. You can essentially support anything you want. So this consumed much of our, again, our four years of doing this thing. Why is it going on? Incomplete lineage sorting is the most likely solution. So here's a pretty standard accepted tree of uh, humans and their closest relatives. If we take any particular gene, yes, we'll probably get this tree. We can take a second gene and get this tree. 
Occasionally, you'll get a gene that gives you a different tree. So something like 15% of human genes actually put humans in gorillas next to each other. This is a problem in complete linear sorting. It's just due to the way that genes are separating in ancestral populations. And it gets worse and worse and worse the more rapid you get a radiation. And because birds seem to be the ultimate rapid radiation, that's why the birds are such a mess. And probably why hundreds of studies in the past have all argued different results to each other. Anyway, eventually we, uh, we settled on a tree we liked. We built ourselves a phylogeny. And we can then look at it in the bird context and see what's interesting about it. There are some things that jump out to people that like birds. At the base of all these neoavies, there's a very, very weird cluster. It's got my favorite bird in, the pigeon, along with things called mesites, sand grouse, and then these weird things, flamingos and grebes. It's pretty weird. Kind of uh, irritating, because it doesn't tell us much about the sort of ancestral neoavies condition. But this is a thing that completely shocked people. And for the few people that care about this kind of thing, is big news. Uh, another thing we find, there is a big radiation of land birds that basically all seem to have predatory birds in the base. So for example, here you'll see these, these are the songbirds, the passerines. At the base of them are the falcons and the suriamas, and at the base of the other ones are these sort of uh, eagle-like birds. So eagles and falcons are different, but also suggest that the sort of the, the ancestor of these land birds was some kind of nice meat-eating predator, which is nice given that birds are basically the surviving dinosaur lineages. Another interesting finding, uh, vocal learning. So a number of bird species cannot just sing, but they can imitate. So, you know, the, the classic, you go into a pet shop and a parrot talks at you. Very few birds have got this capacity to do it. And it turns out in the birds, there's at least three, possibly four different lineages that do it. Songbirds, parrots, hummingbirds. This was a weird one to me. Apparently, if you get close enough, they talk to you. And possibly the mouse birds. And we can see very, very clearly they're not a single cluster. So it seems to have been convergent evolution on basically the mechanisms going on here. And you can, in fact, dissect up the brains of these, and you find structural convergence. You find genetic convergence. So that was kind of interesting for the brain guys. And of course, the other thing you do if you've been trained in Oxford by Eddie Holmes, uh, and this was done by Simon Ho, who used to be here as well, you simply date the phylogeny. Not easy at all with birds, because bird fossils are a little bit shaky um, for many, many reasons. There aren't that many around. But when you do build a phylogeny, you pretty much end up with this picture here. It's kind of hard to see in this resolution. I'm afraid there's a gray line here. This is the uh, impact estimated time sort of 66 million years ago when the meteor comes. The important thing is, all these things sit just downstream of the impact. So it does look like this hypothesis is correct. Meteor comes in and drives all the birds extinct. So that was nice for the, uh, the phylogeny guys. But of course, when you've got 48 genomes, there's a lot of other things you can do as well. And so this kind of leads to the, the next thing we did, the data. Birds uh, are, of course, the only living descendants of dinosaurs. And they're essentially, in that case, related to things like crocodiles and lizards and turtles. And so once you've got a lot of bird genomes and you've got related genomes, you can start to compare them and see what's going on, what makes a bird genome a bird genome. And so one of the key observations about bird genomes that's been known for a long time and is not really understood is their genome size is very, very small. So your average bird genome is about a billion bases long. The human genome is three billion bases long, haploid. So it's much, much smaller. And some um, mammals have got small genomes. All birds have got small genomes. And the question is, why in this? Uh, when I first read about this, there was a paper, it was a paper from the 90s, I think Hughes and Hughes, and they basically mentioned the word flight, and I didn't read properly, so I went away thinking, well, it makes the genomes lighter, I guess, so they can fly easier, you know, easy mistake to make. Um, when you dig into what they're saying, their argument is basically, birds fly, flying increases your metabolism by about 100-fold, so it's really hard work. Increased metabolism means you have a lot of cell damage going on, DNA damage going on. Small things are easier to fix. So their argument is purely it's a way of fixing the DNA after you fly. There's no proof for this, but it's a nice hypothesis. 
Well, we can then dig into the genomes and see what's going on, and you can simply count the deletions that are going on in different parts of the genome, and you see, yeah, well, when you go from the uh, non-avian group to the avian group, you get a huge amount of deletions going on. Very, very large chunks of the genome are missing in all birds. You can then look at what's missing, and you can just find things like the introns are smaller, so instead of being on average 4.3 kb in a mammal, they're 2 kb here, and the intergenic regions are half the size. The number of genes goes down a little bit. Uh, and then with that, you can start to look at questions like, why did they lose them? Was it flight? We don't know, but I'm hoping we can use the stuff to start looking at it. Another big question that really interests me that we can't answer yet, but we're working on it, how did they lose them? How exactly do you get rid of these things, and why do birds only do it? But then you can also look at what's left over. If we are purging things from the genome and they're still alive, there's clearly all these uh, arguments about, uh, you know, is junk DNA junk or not? You can start using these species that have chucked out large chunks of their gene to see what's going on and try and understand what's going on. We can't do this right now because uh, we don't really understand genomics, but it could be getting there soon. So the other things you can do is go into the genetic base of what makes a bird. So I think Gregor used this picture, so I found it again the other day. This is one of the most retarded-looking birds ever, one of the modified chickens, which is particularly crazy when, of course, you remember it's essentially a modified theropod dinosaur. But by, there are, of course, no dinosaurs left today, but by comparing the genomes of birds to the outgroups, you can start to make stabs at what were dinosaurs like and also what are birds like. And again, these are very basic functional evolutionary genetic analyses. Uh, you can look, for example, at tooth genes. And um, reptiles have got teeth that work quite well. Chickens have got no teeth. If you look at the teeth in birds, all the genes are basically falling apart. They're like full of deletions. Not very surprising, but you can do that kind of thing. You look at feathers, for example. There are a huge number of keratin genes in birds because they've got feathers. You can look at the eyes. Birds have got all sorts of modified visual pigments based upon the genes, and that therefore maybe allows them to inhabit a range of uh, different niches. You can look at the limbs, the flight genes. So, for example, genes related to bone structure, relating to the enzymes that deal with DNA damage and stuff, and you can start to say, yeah, they've got genes under selection. The problem with all this is that what we do is we find genes under selection. We don't really know what they do. We make lists. It's extremely boring, and this is actually the fundamental problem with genomics today. We really know bugger all about what genes do. And I honestly believe until we can resolve this issue, most of what we're doing is gonna be making very, very long lists, and therefore we deserve our place in PLOS One. Um, you can, of course, ask questions, as I said, what do these mutations do? Another interesting thing about the genomes, and this I do find interesting, there are a very large number of very, very conserved elements in avian genomes that are avian-specific. So these are chunks of DNA that are not exons, they're not introns, well, very few of them are, are introns and exons, extremely conserved within birds, which is some 150 million years of divergence. These are the things that are normally ignored, but they must be doing something, and of course we can start digging into these things and trying to work out, have they got some kind of functional role? Uh, my colleague, Gody Zhang, has got some quite interesting data on this that I, I guess I shouldn't really discuss, but I do believe there's a lot of stuff we'll be able to find in these very conserved elements with regarding to basically what makes a bird a bird, um, all the nice traits they have. So of course you can then go back to these questions of what do all these parts of the genome actually do? And of course in addition to genes, the other area of really growing interest these days is the microbiomes, right? So we're just scratching the surface on the genomes, but microbiomes may be fundamentally important. And I wanna highlight just, just one little study done by some guys, a guy called Michael Roggenbuck led this. He looked at one of the most disgusting data sets ever envisaged. This is a vulture. Um, as most of you probably know, vultures specialize in eating really, really nasty, rotting food. They prefer to eat fresh meat, but they will quite happily consume stuff that will kill any other animal, right? Now, that's quite an interesting trait. How do they survive doing this? So uh, there was a study led by a guy called Gary Graves at the Smithsonian, and he basically 
The way he describes it is there is a black ops team of specialists uh, in America who go around killing vultures when nobody's looking. They're protected, but if they're crapping on your roof, you can apply to get them taken out. And they ran this sort of uh, program where they were, the, the vultures were going to be removed anyway because they were a pest, but they set up this kind of processing line that the vultures were gassed, and then they took swabs from the face and the beak and the stomach and the gut, and they took all these samples and put some in glycerol and some in RNA later, and did microbiome sequencing. And the neat thing about these things is that the microbiomes of the guts are dominated by Fusobacteria and Clostridia. Now, these are the things that cause gas gangrene in humans, very, very nasty pathogens, but these guys' guts are full of them. So it's, it seems that there's something going on in there that these, these bacteria that we know are come by rotting flesh then sort of survive through the gut and actually help these things survive. So this is pointed to a very strong case of microbes through adaptation, and this is something I want to come back to in a minute. Of course, linked to this, there is also recent stuff on humans pointing the other way, that in addition to allowing adaptation, microbes could even be driving adaptation. And my point here is that I think studying the genomes is not going to be enough. Until we dig into these microbiome kind of things, we're going to be somewhat limited in what we understand. So to jump really then to the last thing, so we've analyzed all these modern genomes, and as Tom said, my uh, background is with uh, the wonderful Alan, um, who inspired so many of us in this room. And Alan is an ancient DNA kind of guy, and uh, of course I'm always thinking about ancient DNA, and I'm not a comparative genome guy, so that's Goji's terrain, I'm not a brain guy, that's Eric's terrain, my other colleagues. But with these genomes, what I'm hoping to do is get into the extinct birds. So here are some of the sexy, exciting extinct birds. You've got the dodo, uh, those who don't know about the exciting sample in Oxford in the museum should go and see it. Great orc. The great orc is uh, the original um, penguin in many ways. It's not a penguin at all, but it was the North Sea version of the penguin, related to a razor bill that went extinct. The last couple were uh, squashed by Icelanders or something by accident. The giant eagle of New Zealand. This was one actually that was uh, published on while, um, while Alan and Mike Bunce were here in Oxford. These were sort of moa predating sized eagles that went around doing a a lot of damage, and if we can get the genomes of these, there are some interesting things we can, we can start to do with these kind of things. Of course, we can explore extinct function. A very nice paper by Kevin Campbell in Manitoba in Nature Genetics a few years ago, they sequenced mammoth hemoglobin. You might wonder, why would you want to sequence mammoth hemoglobin? Well, uh, mammoths live in the cold, elephants live in the warm. If you are a regular warm-blooded thing and you get cold, your hemoglobin is not able to hold on to... Um, the oxygen, and you basically go brain dead from lack of oxygen. So by basically expressing mammoth hemoglobin, Kevin Campbell showed that the, the hemoglobin would work at very cold temperatures and actually managed to make a sort of functional argument for the, the existence of mammoths. So of course, with these other birds, you can start to do this. You can imagine, for example, we have a great orc, and what we want to know is what kind of environment did the great orc live in? We know it lived in the sea, but how deep did it dive? How long could it dive? With this kind of information, you can start to ask, why did it go extinct when the Razorbill survived? Were they competing with each other? Were they in different niches? So you can kind of get an insight into what's going on that way. That's exactly what I said. Another possibly neat area that I think is, is really going to be very profitable, especially for museums, is looking at the decline of species. So this is the crested ibis. Crested ibis uh, in 1981 went extinct, and then in 1982 it was unextinct again. Uh, the last four died in Japan, I think, four or five, but then in 1982, they found two breeding pairs in China. And these two breeding pairs have given rise to something like two, four, I forget the number, 5,000 crested ibis today. So uh, a study um, last year sequenced the genomes of many of these crested ibis that are alive today, and it finds all these things like deleterious mutations and low diversity, all these things that conservation geneticists have been going on about for a very, very long time about big, big problems. You know, you get low diversity and all goes wrong. The problem, of course, is that all the conservation genetic literature is A, based on microsats, which is a very small amount of data, and B, it's based on the present. 
Just because we see things with low diversity today doesn't mean that these things you know, have got this as a result of going through trouble. Theory predicts that, but what happens in reality? So what we can now do, for example, is things like the crested ibis, we can sequence museum samples, we can sequence you know, everything from 1800 onwards, sequence their whole genomes and look at them as they go through the bottleneck and compare them to the present and then see, well, did they look different before the bottleneck or not? You may think this is kind of academic and arbitrary, but if you consider, for example, Kenya today, the KWS, the Wildlife Service, are spending all their very small amounts of money moving rhinos around there, microsat typing rhinos, they're translocating rhinos around the place, they're trying to breed them for maximized diversity, which is great if it actually works and is gonna save them, but this is money they could be using for shooting poachers otherwise. So there, there are very big implications for management based upon these basically untested theories. And of course, in addition to looking at what happens, you can look for the predispositions. As I said, uh, you can look on very, very cool animals like, like the saber-toothed cat. This is not a bird, I guess even I know this. But uh, you might, I mean, this animal went extinct 10,000 years ago and uh, lions survived, tigers survived. Why did this go extinct? This is much harder than these things. I mean, this thing looks really tough. This should have eaten the humans, not been driven extinct by them. Was it genetic predispositions? Did it have, get itself into a bottleneck or was it something else? Not all animals are worth doing that. Clearly the dodo went extinct because it was retarded. The, the sailor's accounts pretty much show this. But, um, but it's worth doing on a number of species. I think these ones like the great orc, which are borderline, what's going on there? The last area that of course I want to comment on briefly is, is de-extinction. This is becoming a very, very, very hot topic these days. Um, those of you who remember Beth Shapiro, she had a book out on it very, very recently that's all over the, uh, the web right now. And it's, it's a good read for those who are interested in the topic. But people are convinced that we're nearing the time when we're going to bring back extinct species. And whether we're going to do that or not is actually something worth considering. And again, my insights that I've learned from genomics have very much driven my thoughts on whether I think it's possible or not. There are essentially three issues in this that I would like to flag up. Ethics, uh, definition, and methods. Um, and incidentally, I just want to show you this. This is a quagga. The quagga was the first uh, ancient sample really ever sequenced. In 84, um, Wilson, Alan Wilson, Rosiguchi sequenced this, and they showed it was basically a horse-like equid. This is not a quagga. This is some very, very good breeding efforts to make an animal that looks like a quagga, right? So it's quite possible to breed things that look like things. If you're doing de-extinction just to have a nice zoo, that's the way to go. It's a lot easier, very, very beautiful. So there is, a, though, these questions of ethics. Um, one of the big issues is what do we bring back? How do we decide what's worth bringing back? What time period? What region should we go to? And there's the money issue. I mean, should we spend billions or at least millions and millions of euros or pounds on doing this, or should we uh, stop the rhinos going extinct? Because they're kind of in trouble. So, uh, and then there's issues like death. I mean. Dolly the sheep uh, killed many other sheep, I think, in the process of making Dolly the sheep. How many elephants should we kill to make a mammoth? All sorts of problems there. There is the definition. A lot of uh, de-extinction people have got very vague definitions of what is de-extinction. Uh, some people say this is de-extinct. There's also a very nice auroch program. Aurochs were these really hardcore big cows that used to terrorize Europe. They've bred very, very big angry cows that look like aurochs today, right? If you just want to release animals to, to squish people or to be hunted, that's the way to go. But on the other hand, if you want an aurochs that's a full-on aurochs, that's a whole different matter. So where exactly do you want to draw your line on, on what's going on? And part of this is because of similarity. I mean, is it, to be a, a true de-extinction, should it be 100% genomically the same? Is the genome even the same? What about these metagenomes, the microbes I'm talking about, or the, the influence of behavior? Just because you have a baby mammoth doesn't mean there's going to be a mummy mammoth to teach the baby mammoth how to uproot trees or whatever mammoths did. Pre-birth development uh, environment, this is a major, major issue. I mean, uh, people have been trying to grow um, Pyrenean ibex inside another ibex's uterus. They have basically uh, 
cell lines of the last Pyrenean ibex, the sister subspecies, every time they manage to put a fertile Pyrenean ibex, or at least a, a growing clone inside the close related subspecies, they give birth to Pyrenean ibex with no heads and these kind of things. So that chemical environment is obviously very, very important. The methods people are talking about, there's really three ways on the cards right now. IVF from frozen sperm. So the idea is you stumble across a frozen mammoth, you hack open its testicles, you suck out the sperm, you then inject it into an elephant or something, or an elephant or, uh, uh, egg, and then you create a mammoth. Probably not going to happen. Um, it's unlikely we're going to find frozen mammoth balls. Um, cloning from a frozen cell, similar problem. Just because you find a frozen mammoth doesn't mean it was flash frozen, like you might dip a mouse in liquid nitrogen. If you think how long it would take for a mammoth carcass to cool down to uh, ambient permafrost temperature, it's probably many, many hours. So that really comes back to um, cloning and sequencing uh, based on ancient genomes. And this is where our modern genomes come in, because the more genomes we do, the more likely we can reconstruct a decent ancient genome. And then we can maybe edit using CRISPR-Cas or whatever we want to use the modern genome with the ancient genome and see what we can do. So, for example, bird-wise, um, we published 48 or so genomes. We've got about 250 bird genomes now, one per family. The idea would be to get the genus and the species, and then you've got fairly close relatives for a number of species, and you can start to do this. There is a problem. Uh, the very simple ancient DNA lecture, DNA is like ice cream. It goes bad in the warm, gets eaten, and there's very soon none left. Ancient DNA degrades, it vanishes away. That leaves us with a big, big problem when we're trying to get DNA from these ancient samples we have to get around. There's another problem. This is a review, again, that Beth and Mickey Hofreiter put out. Um, this is actually one of the most, I think, revealing figures about de-extinction. What they did was they simply took the Neanderthal genome shotgun data that existed, and they took the reads that they had, and they mapped them against different genomes, human, chimpanzee, orang, macaque, mouse. So this is going out in evolutionary divergence. This is how long. So a mouse, about 90 million years. Human, you know, maybe 500,000 years. And for example, while uh, 60 of every 1,000 reads map to the human, you basically view this as 100%, don't worry about the details. Chimpanzee, there's a drop-off. As you're getting out to mouse and bushpig, very, very few uh, reads are mapping, like 10, 20, 30%. Now what they've done is they've taken a load of extinct species and they've plotted them essentially based upon their divergence from a living relative. So your uh, moa from New Zealand, the big ostrich-like birds in New Zealand, are about 60 million years divergent from any living relative. All this is saying is if you get your ostrich genome, you sequence your moa, maybe you're only going to be able to map 30% of the reads, which means you'll only be able to reconstruct 30% of the genome. Not much point pretending you're going to do 100% of a genome. So it's a very, very important figure. Ancient DNA, limited to short amounts of DNA, really limits how much of a genome you can get from all these exciting extinct species. Probably not going to get a moa, sadly not going to get a giant sloth. Possibly getting into the realm of the stellar sea cow, but then you have to wonder, what are you going to grow your stellar sea cow inside, given it's like three times bigger than a regular sea cow? That's like growing an Alsatian inside a chihuahua. Not very fun. But as you get this way, things get more likely. So you've probably seen in the press recently, there's all sorts of excitement about George Church putting uh, 14 or 20 mammoth genes into elephant cell lines. That's the way it's going. And so as long as your definition of de-extinction is, well, it's something kind of like a hybrid, maybe they'll get there. So the questions related to de-extinction are really things like, how far back in time can we go? We're never going to get dinosaurs de-extinct. Uh, what environments can we expect to recreate species from? As I said, DNA is ice cream. There may be some very sexy animals from Indonesia that went extinct. If they happened more than not very long ago, we're never going to be able to get the DNA back. How close a reference genome do we need? As I said, moas, not going to happen, unfortunately. Uh, maybe mammoths, we can do it. Can we even make a better reference genome? Are we stuck with just mapping approaches and how much of the genome do we need? 
And of course, this comes back to a point I made earlier, which is the prerequisites of all of this is really understanding what genomes actually do. And instead, this is the fundamental problem in genomics today. We really don't know our ass from our elbow, to use a famous saying. We've got no idea what is going on with what the genes are doing or so on. And that's really going to be the big limiting factor. We're in this nice stage now where pretty much anybody can generate a genome. I did a vampire bat genome recently, which I crowdsourced. It's that easy today. You basically say, I'm going to do a vampire. I need a bit of money. And people go, ooh, vampire, that's sexy. Right now, to do a decent genome, maybe, you know, decent's a, a vague term. And decent could be anything from maybe 10,000 euros up to 100,000 euros. But to do a crappy genome, like a bird genome, a, maybe 30x coverage. This is only like 2,000 euros these days. It's getting cheap. Doesn't mean we can do sensible things with them. So back to my pigeons, which is my original point. I will update you about our mass slaughter across the globe of pigeons. What we're doing is we're out there hunting our pigeons, um, generally more successfully than us doing ourselves. We get collaborators to do it. For those, again, who really want to jump in and help me get them, the easiest technique, it turns out, is you throw your crossing on the floor, stand with a round net. Pigeon comes, drop it on it. Stand on it very hard. Get your pigeon. We've got a global sample right now, but you'll see from the map, and I'm completely serious about this, we have none from Britain. Darwin's hotbed of pigeonism, feral pigeons, we're desperate for some. I cannot in the life of me get my hands on feral pigeons, so I really would like a collaborator. Our whistly titled project is now 450 shades of grey. We've got that many pigeons we've documented and photoed, and we're now doing several things on them. We're basically doing population level analyses to look at the feral pigeons and how they relate to each other and then compare them to the breeds and try and look at what's being bred in, what's going out. You'll notice that feral pigeons mostly look gray like these ones here. You get a few that are brown and white, but they don't hang around very long. Is that just natural selection on them? Or is it because there are very, very simple mutations underlying the phenotype that the moment you take all the pressure off from being a pigeon breeder, they just flip back to a gray state? These kind of things we're trying to look at. This is my state-of-the-art phylogeny that I made up. Um, this is, the interesting thing about them is they do seem to exhibit colonial history. So pigeons come from the, the Middle East, uh, the so-called wild pigeons that are probably not wild and most closely related to uh, sorry, feral pigeons from Iran and Israel. And then we, get, we basically uh, you know, replicate colonial history. So for example, feral pigeons in the USA are very close to Northern Europe and so the ones in Kenya and South Africa, all British colonies. Pen, uh, pigeons in Mexico, for example, come out of Spain, Brazil, out of Portugal. So they do seem to be spreading in a nice human-mediated manner. And hopefully, once we get more of them, we'll know more about what's going on there. And eventually, I will publish on them. So in summary, uh, my main point I wanted to make is that genomes, they really are becoming an everyday tool. Uh, it doesn't actually mean you can do sensible things with them, but at least we can get them today. And what I think this really underlines is actually the most important thing today is samples and questions. This is where the power is today. Anybody can generate them, but having the samples is very rare. To do a good genome, you need really good quality material. You can't just rely on a sample that somebody collected in the field. And so if you want to get into genomics, put all your effort into collecting the samples properly, and you'll be amazed what we'll be able to do in 100,000 years' time when we understand genomes. So that's it. Uh, thanks to Tom for inviting me here. Uh, so as I said, a lot of my work's with Goji Zhang at BGI and Eric Jarvis at Duke. Uh, we've been running the Avian Genomics Consortium. We have uh, moved on to phase two now. So in our original model, we did all the orders. It was about 45 genomes. By later this year, we'll have 250 genomes, one per avian family. And the way we run our model is we're very, very willing to give the data to anybody that wants it, as long as they respect a few rules. So if there are people who've got desperate uses for avian genomes, they should contact me, and I can see what I can arrange. And with that, thanks. <laughs>